All of us are on a journey of becoming, a never-ending journey in pursuit of truth and deeper union with the divine. As you know, faith is a complicated thing and this journey of becoming can be both difficult and painful. Far too often, we have not been given a space where we can safely address the complications and issues that arise naturally. My name is Joshua Patterson, and I am also on this journey of becoming. I am dedicated to inviting you into my story and creating a space where questions and critical thinking are welcome. I want to take an honest look at the issues and questions so common to this shared journey. I want to genuinely seek out what it means to follow Jesus in our ever-changing world, in our unfolding and expanding universe, and in our pluralistic society. I have come to know that doubt is not the enemy of faith, but rather that both doubt and curiosity are two of faith's biggest allies. I have learned that the Christian faith is more about wisdom and love than it is about correct doctrine or belief. And I believe that we are being invited to continually seek out both wisdom and love, renewing our minds, expanding our hearts, and rethinking our faith in the process. Thank you for joining me on that journey. All right. Well, welcome back to another episode of the Rethinking Faith podcast. As always, I'm your host, Josh Patterson. And uh, Greg is not with me today. Actually, I want to give a quick uh, a quick update on Greg. So Greg has actually decided that Greg is going to step away from the podcast. Um, Greg, as you guys know, he's been like gone for about three months now, you know, doing stuff. Um, and he just feels that, uh, you know, where he's at currently in life, uh, doing the podcast is um, not necessarily something that, uh, you know, he feels he can give his energy to fully in a way uh, in a way that's fair to you guys. And so um, I guess for me, I'm going solo again. And one of my friends, Gabe, told me that, you know, the reason I can't keep a co-host is because obviously I smell bad. And since all of my co-hosts have only ever existed on Zoom, I must smell really bad because it's able to somehow you know, make its way across, you know, however that shit travels to wherever they're at on Zoom. So, uh, Greg, we wish you the best of luck. Thanks for everything, homie. Uh, but for now, I'm going to go solo unless, you know, perhaps you're a patron and you're like, huh, I know somebody who would make a really good co-host and I would love to hear Josh talk with him. Hit me up on Patreon and let me know. But for now, like I said, we're flying solo. And we're going to have some fun. So that's all the housekeeping for this morning. Today, I do have a guest with me that I'm excited to talk to. Heather Hamilton is present today. Heather, how's it going? It's going well. And I was laughing when you were just saying that because I was going to tell you, like every podcast I've done, I feel this compulsion to like have a breath mint before I do it. And I don't know why. <laughs> like, I'm just like... I feel like my breath needs to be fresh for this internet conversation. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, somehow, you know, as we talk into our respective microphones, uh, if there's bad breath, it flows through one and into the other. So, yeah, I think that's I how know. technology works. Pick it up. Yeah. Yeah. So. <laughs> so, but yeah, thanks for having me. I'm excited yeah. to talk to you. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for coming and hanging out. And also thanks for being patient with me. Uh, listeners have heard me say this a million times, but 
uh, scheduling is, you know, not always one of my strong suits. And so I know we've uh, gone back and forth a few times. So thanks for being patient. Um, and now you're here. So we'll have some fun. Yeah. Yes. But I guess for uh, listeners who maybe are not f- uh, familiar with yourself or your work, can you just kind of uh, introduce yourself and, you know, tell us a little bit about who you are and what kind of stuff you find yourself doing? Yeah. So, um, as you already said, my name's Heather Hamilton. I just came out with a book um, called Returning to Eden. Will this be up on YouTube? Are people going to be able to see this? Uh, yeah. So yes. our patrons uh, get to see the yeah, video yeah. footage. Okay. But if not, yeah. Okay. So yes. They can see it. I'll yeah. hold up mine so I, too so everyone can see. Woo! Awesome. Yeah, there it is. <laughs> yeah. So this is my new book. Um, it's called Returning to Eden. And I started, I mean, we'll get into it, but, um, you know, I feel like it's been brewing, um, to use a word you like, it's been like brewing in my head and my heart for like, um, you know, almost four years probably, but I started writing it at the end of 2021 and went through the whole production process. So yeah, it's my first book and didn't know what was going to happen with it. Um, you know, as a new author, but it, launched about, um, I'm not sure when this will air, but about a month ago on February 22nd and it made a big splash. And so it was like pleasantly surprising that so many people were kind of resonating with it. And I'm getting like really great feedback from all different kinds of people, like even people who are still in the evangelical world and ex-evangelicals and people who deconstructed and atheists and you know, people from the Baha'i faith and Jewish people. And it's just been like a whole range. Um, So I'm excited about that because basically I think what I'm trying to express and communicate in the book is really like universal wisdom. I'm just using like the quote unquote Christian language to do it. So I'm really happy that it's not just Christians that are finding value in it. Although, of course, Christians are. Yeah. No, awesome. I think that's that's really cool to hear because, I mean, I think just, you know, from reading and engaging your work, um, I mean, at least it makes sense to me why it would appeal to that uh, kind of larger audience. And I think, you know, mm-hmm. obviously we'll get into to some of that um, here in a bit. But I'm I'm just curious as to, you know, story is something that's always been important uh, here on Rethinking Faith. And I think, you know, uh, there's this you know, I say this all the time on the show and it's, it's wisdom that was given to me, but there's this uh, idea understanding that if we're willing to go deep enough into ourselves, uh, then other people might find themselves, you know, present as well. And so yeah. I'm just curious if you'd be willing to just share a bit about uh, your story with people um, and how it is you got to be where you find yourself uh, today that led you to write <laughs> a book such as Returning mm-hmm. to Eden. Yeah. Well, um, it's funny that you say like, yeah, if you go deep into your enough into yourself, it's, it's funny to me because I think prior to about four and a half years ago, I wasn't even aware that there was like somewhere deeper to go. Like you don't really even know that that exists or have like the ears to hear that, um, until you're kind of just like plunged into it. And then it's like, whoa, there's, there's more here there's more to myself than I, that I was even aware of. Um, but so, yeah, the backstory is really, I I mean, my, 
being raised in the church is pretty typical. Like I got involved with Awanas. I don't know if you're familiar with what that is, but like really I'm from the South. So it was like very Bible Belt, Southern Baptist, you know, went to church on like probably like Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night. And um, yeah, so my first introduction was like Awanas where as a child you go like learn Bible verses and you get little pins and badges and everything. It's kind of like, I don't know, like Girl Scouts, but for Bible verses or something. Um, So I loved it. And, you know, we moved around a little bit in the South and everywhere we would land, you know, I'd be like, I got to go find my youth group kind of thing. I got to go find my people. So anyway, it was just sort of on my own plugged into evangelical culture. Um, I I know a lot of people feel like their parents just drug them to it and they didn't really have a choice. And that really wasn't the case for me. Um, I feel like I was always really seeking it out. Um, so yeah, I got, you know, quote unquote saved when I was seven at a VBS. And um, yeah, the youth group experience was was always, you know, real emotional services where I would either, you know, be rededicating my life to Christ or, you know, (laughs) committing myself as a missionary when I'm like 11 and 12 years old, this kind of thing. So I loved it, but it also always felt very life and death um, where, you know, if all these people are going to hell, like somebody has to do something. So I always felt like the trajectory of my life was through this life or death, we have to save people filter (laughs) kind of thing. Um, So looking back, I I think I had probably a lot of existential anxiety like as a child um, and would kind of be a little obsessive about, you know, my salvation status kind of thing, saying the prayer, you know, before I go to bed, just in case. Um, And once I kind of got through that, it was, um, you know, finding myself in leadership positions in the church and eventually, you know, meeting my husband um, in my early 20s. So he was working at the church I was going to. I was doing a bunch of freelance, and we were just very involved there. um, And it was a very large mega church. And so Matt had our three kids, and he eventually became the music director um, at this really large church. And so it was just, it just felt like this story of, you know, we, I followed the path I've given my life to God. And so this is not the quote unquote payoff, but like, this was, this was a good way to live my life, you know, and we're like on mission and yada, yada. So anyway, um, that, it was kind of a boring story up until about four and a half years ago. I just had some really, um, fast (laughs) clarity and revelations about some things in my life that I hadn't dealt with that I had realized probably had been driving 99% of the decisions that I had made in my life up into that point. It was like, you know, my life kind of felt like this puzzle um, that I couldn't quite see the full picture of. And I didn't even know that I was trying to put the pieces of the puzzle together until someone, it was like, you know, if you're working on a thousand piece puzzle and you don't have a picture of what the end product is supposed to look like, and then someone like flashes you the box and you're like, oh, okay, I see what the whole picture is supposed to, it was that kind of clarity where I just saw my whole life like that and realized, 
oh, shit, you know, <laughs> like, have I even made any of my own decisions and just realized I had really left my authentic self or my th authentic essence, like way back in childhood. So long story short, this totally like rocked my world. And over the course of a few days, I had a complete what would be like conventionally called a nervous breakdown, um, where I had just had my third kid and like could not function, had lost control of like my body. And and this was especially jarring for me because as I said, like I had never really dealt with any mental health issues that I was aware of up until that point. I had never had any like substance abuse issues nothing that would be like, oh, this is a struggle, something that has built up to this or whatever. It was just like totally good, good, successful, you know, got it together woman to like um, the bottom of the abyss <laughs> where I was going, if I cannot get help or figure this out, this is going to lead to suicide like very quickly. Like my nervous system was just that blown out. Um, and so you know, one evening as I was just, you know, crying out to God to like help me, <laughs> um, it was just this um, experience of nothingness. Um, I recognized it as hell, as a like a psychological and spiritual just forsakenness, really. Like I felt like I was untethered out in space and that was it. And just like my whole conception of God as this ontological being that would somehow rescue me from <laughs> such a time as this, like just completely shattered. Um, so it was a very experiential knowing that what I, my conceptions up until that point of God were not correct the way, the way that I had expected some kind of response in a moment like that was not reality. Um, and so, and there was this sobering realization of like, this is not going to end well um, if I don't get help. And so um, in that moment, yeah, I was um, down in the basement, which kind of felt like this foreshadow of like, just, I don't know, being in this psychological dungeon or something, but I come upstairs and tell my husband, like, I need help. I need you to call 911. And so he did. And, um, the person that came to our door, you know, there was an emergency response team and I opened the door and as I started communicating, I immediately recognized that the person on my front porch was a transgender woman and being in the little evangelical bubble with the worldview that I had, this was very, a very jarring experience to me where this was like the most vulnerable moment in my life. And you know, the person who has come to help me is someone that I obviously, I didn't realize this, but I was, you know, I had prejudice or like unconscious bias towards. And, and it was this orientation where I realized I, I view myself as a Christian, as the rescuer here. Like I'm the one who has the truth, who's supposed to be bestowing and helping and quote unquote, saving people like you. And now that the tables are turned and I'm the one who needs some help and you're the good Samaritan over here, it was, it was really like that story where I was like, oh, I don't, I don't know if I trust you to help me. Um, but I just started 
talking because there really was no <laughs> there was no other option but just to explain what was happening. And as she started communicating with me, it was like for the first time in that whole situation, I felt so seen um, and I just felt like this benevolent presence um, coming off of her. And it was this moment in my life where like time just totally collapsed. It's like there was no time. It was just this bubble where I felt the strongest presence of what I would call Christ like that I've ever experienced in my life. And it was coming from this body that I would not have expected. And so quite literally for me, it was Jesus showing up on my front porch in the body of a transgender woman. And um, yeah, it was like the incarnation of Christ in this surprising body. And so that was really like this road to Damascus moment for me where I knew that I had experienced Christ for real. And it was the most certain experience of that in my life. And also going like, I have no idea what I believe anymore. Like it all just <laughs> fell down. Um, so it was several months of like therapy after that. And, um, you know, that I, that started what was my quote unquote deconstruction process. Um, but it was, it was a very like earth shattering moment. Um, which, you know, I wouldn't really wish on anyone, but at the same time, it was so visceral that the pieces that were falling apart and being reassembled were orienting around this very clear experience of Christ that I had. And so if something didn't align with that anymore, then it had to go. So yeah, I'll stop there for, for now. But that was like the story up until, yeah, the point of the book. Yeah. Awesome. Well, thanks for sharing. There's so, I mean, there's so much there that, um, you know, I resonate with and also like some similar uh, parallels within my own story. Um, and I'll share that with you. But like one thing I wanted to point out prior to that, though, is I think one thing that's cool about sh you sharing your story is that, as you know, there's like certain people who have these like tropes or sayings about, uh, you know, people who have like experienced deconstruction or something like that, where they try to write it off and say it's, oh, these people mm -hmm. just want to sin or they just think it's this fun trend or something like that. When in reality, for people uh, like yourself and um, also myself who have actually experienced these kind of things, um, it feels almost more like something that happens to you, right? Uh, not something oh, yeah. that necessarily oh, totally. you, you seek out. And so I think your story just really helps demonstrate that and kind of flies in the face of some of these, um, you know, like silly things that people with, I don't know, we'll assume that they have good intentions <laughs> are saying, but yeah. they're just trying to speak about an experience that they, they've never had. So I think that's right. interesting. Um, yeah. Like within your story, I, you know, I wrote down some things that uh, were similar, you know, uh, for me. So I don't know how much you know about uh, my own story, but prior to being a brewer, I was a pastor. Um, mm -hmm. So I graduated uh, from like a private Christian college. I started working for Youth for Christ immediately out of college, uh, did that mm -hmm. for like about a year and then moved to, so I'm in Maryland currently, it's where I'm from, moved to South Florida with my wife uh, to take a job as a teaching pastor um, at a church in Boca Raton, Florida. Um, mm -hmm. And that church was an absolute shit show. Um, mm -hmm. I've talked about, you know, talked about it plenty on this, this podcast, but I, there I experienced like 
and I don't use these terms lightly. So like verbal, emotional, spiritual, and borderline physical abuse um, at the hands of the founding pastor and also uh, my boss, the, the head pastor at the current the location I was at. Um, and that kind of is what started to break things for me um, yeah. was just an experience of like, hey, I'm going to go be a pastor, which is like, aside from maybe a missionary, the coolest thing a Christian can do, right? And yeah. uh, then I finally get to this place trying to do what I think is is the right thing and just kind of get shit on real quick. Um, mm-hmm. So I ended up leaving that church and going to work at a Methodist church. And um, there I was just a youth pastor. Um, it was a lot, you know, it was, the church was better than the first church I worked mm-hmm. at, but it had its own kind of problems. Uh, but yeah. a really interesting experience happened to me there. Um, so prior to being brought on to staff when i was interviewed they i was in a room with like five other people and they were asking me questions and one of the things they asked me um was about my perspective uh on homosexuality and Mm -hmm. i didn't know the answer they wanted me to give and so Mm -hmm. i kind of uh spoke around it and more so more so shared story um Mm -hmm. so like both i have uh two brothers and both of my brothers are you know, within the LGBTQ community, uh, my middle brother mm-hmm. um, identifies as gay. My other brother identifies as pansexual. And so I kind of just talked about them and said, you know, this is my story and, you know, et cetera. And then I come to find out <laughs> after my first day of being hired there, I brought into the office and uh, it was the head pastor and the worship director, the modern worship director. She's like, oh, I have something to tell you. And I was like, what? She's like, oh, well, Chad is gay. I hope that's okay with you. <laughs> and so like, um, I was like, oh, cool. So then, uh, and I was still in like a really interesting place, right? Like theologically, mm-hmm. I was, I was, had a more um, open and accepting uh, the way I carried myself, uh, be- you yeah. know, because of my brothers and their story. But also I still had like some theological rumblings, you know, going on in yes. the back of my mind. And so it's an experience that was similar to yours was actually, uh, well, one, Chad is currently still one of my best friends in the whole world, um, but him and I became very close. And when I would witness him uh, leading people in worship and seeing, uh, you know, at the time out, you know, talking about like the Holy Spirit or something like that, present and active amongst these people uh, flowing out of Chad, I was like, there's, you know what I mean? That shattered theological ideas for me because it was like oh no experientially i i'm witnessing this beautiful thing and so it's kind of a similar experience there um yeah and then ultimately oh good i was just going to say um you just describing that with chad um i i it was very it was very similar for me where um you know because we were part of this large mega church and we were actually um involved with a ministry that was really like focused on uh, quote unquote millennials, but it was like really designed to bring like that younger generation in. Um, And there were a ton of people, you know, on the LGBTQ spectrum, you know, we even had like some trans people that were there. And, and I was in the same kind of spot where like my demeanor was very open and welcoming. It's, it was like, this isn't my place to say anything. Like, let's, you know, just bring them all in kind of thing, you know, and like, let God do the rest was kind of the, was kind of where I was at. Um, And 
after my experience um, on the porch with my trans, with the trans woman, and how crystal clear, like Christ was like emanating through her. Yeah, it really became uh, bothersome to me, where I w- I was like, this is the clearest Christ has ever spoken to me, despite the fact that I've been in the church my entire life, and this woman would not be allowed to preach or pastor at, at the church, you know? And it just was, it just became this really easy thing for me where, where I realized, you know, dignity was uh, allowing someone to like express the fullness of their gifts, like with no judgment on like the outside or physical differences or anything like that. It was, it was just like, if you're a human and you know, you have the love of Christ like emanating from you. I would like to know what God has to say. <laughs> you know what I mean? Um, so, and I very much r- can relate to that um, with the exception of, I think for me, and this is where I have, you know, some grace for myself and some grace for people who are still, you know, in that very uh, fearful place where at least for me, it wasn't a matter of, I don't, I don't want to have the most loving theology or I'm not willing to think about it or anything like that. It was literally the fear of hell where for me to have changed anything before that point, um, I can now see would have required reckoning with an existential crisis, which, you know, still to this day, that experience of hell, I mean, uh, yeah, I'm not trying to be over dramatic, but it, it was just like, if I don't get help, I cannot live like this. Like my nervous system was just so disrupted by it where it it wasn't even a logical thing. It was, you know, not until I dealt with what hell actually was and kind of faced my own fear of death and had the whole existential crisis, which literally like was like a bomb on my whole life. It was only then that I could reconfigure any of this stuff logically. So I, you know, I see that dynamic now, you know, and in justice work and advocacy, trying to, I don't, maybe in sharing my story, put it out there that for a lot of people, it's not a rational thing. It's not, and it's not even an unwillingness to want to do the right thing. It's like, oh yeah, I want gay people to be happy but I just love God more. You know what I mean? And you see this with parents and their children. You know, it's like, I'm going to overcome my biological impulse to love my child because I'm so committed to this picture of God and how, you know, and how I'm supposed to obey and serve him. And if I don't, then, you know, my amygdala is firing with pictures of like eternal hellfire and flames, (laughs) you know? Yeah, no, for sure. I think the, the, that, I don't know. So like, I tend to reject fear-based systems just outright because I think it's Mm -hmm. not, it's not helpful like you're explaining, but also there's been so much research around, uh, like my buddy, Dan Koch, he does the, uh, you have permission podcast and he's currently working on his, uh, side D right now. Um, Mm -hmm. but Dan does a lot of uh, study and research currently around like spiritual abuse and trauma. And so he's doing some really cool work around the kind of things you're talking about right now. 
And also there were uh, some other psychology researchers that developed this thing called like the hell scale. And it's, mm-hmm. it's literally like um, doing research into how this concept of like eternal conscious torment um, actually impacts people um, psychologically and what it does to like our yes. nervous system and everything like you're describing. Um, and yeah. I think it's really interesting that people are actually, you know, studying that now. Um, and I think even too, Mark, uh, Mark Karras, uh, has a, is working on a book. Uh, yeah, he's a, he's a well. fellow author at my publisher choir. Um, and I think that he has a book coming out. I want to say it's in late, late March, maybe a couple weeks in later March, um, or early April. It's soon. It's about hell. Yeah. Yeah. He, I think he kind of tested some of his ideas, um, in this, in a book called Deconstructing Hell, uh, he wrote a mm-hmm. chapter for it, um, which was cool because, like, I had Mark on the show before, and then I got published in a book, you know, with other people I've yeah. had on the show before, which is sweet. Yeah. So I was excited about that. But um, yeah, the health thing is is really interesting, and it, for me too, kind of. I so like hell was something that I was, that I like kind of questioned a little bit earlier on and kind of came to more of like a conditional immortality kind of understanding Mm -hmm. for a little bit, which kind of softened it. Um, Mm -hmm. But for me, my biggest issue was I was basically believed like the God that I was told about, I don't want to meet that guy because he sounds like an asshole (laughs) and he's going to like beat me up or something. And so, and again, a lot of it, there was a lot of emotion in that and actually took me walking through um, some things with my spiritual director um, and mm-hmm. also finding open and relational uh, and process thought, specifically open theology yeah. first, um, a la, you know, like my friend Tom Ward. Um, Tom's work was was instrumental for me in actually giving me a logical picture of a God that I actually wanted to know. And then that mm-hmm. plus spiritual direction, which opened me up to like experiencing things in my body and um, yeah. actually wanting to experience this God that's when like my, uh, what I would call like, you know, use the word like mystical experience. That's where I started to have those kind of mystical experiences that just shattered everything. And then mm-hmm. you start learning that there's a different way to know things like a deeper kind of knowing, um, you know, like yeah. you, you talk about in your book. And um, so that's, yeah, that's kind of the path that I took to kind of get to yeah that kind of yeah. place. Well, yeah. I, I really appreciate you saying that. I'll tell you a little funny story. I don't know if I've actually ever told anybody this. Um, but so, yeah, so my my husband, I would say, um, reminds me a little bit more of you, like how, how your brain kind of works and is a little more like methodical. Um, he, he's, he's more like a head center type person. Um, and... So yeah, when I had this experience, um, it was actually a really good thing that I went first um, or got you know dropped into the hole of deconstruction first, because I think if it had been the other way around, I would have felt very betrayed. But you know, if he had started saying these, you know, I'm questioning or I don't know if I still want to be a Christian, you know, this kind of thing, because this was like an absolute attachment based prerequisite for me, you know you needed to check this box before we got married. And I, you know, definitely love you, but like, it wasn't an option for me to marry someone who wasn't checking these boxes, you know? So when I went first, um, 
and, and you know, he was kind of coming along, of course. And I, and I hear about this, you know, all the time in marriage. I mean, some marriages don't survive this, this kind of thing. Um, but so of course there was like this period of friction where, you know, I'm having to come out of certain environments. He's not really understanding why. And we later kind of figured out that all this religious trauma really penetrated me in a much deeper way than it did for him. Like a lot of the toxic beliefs that we left behind, they, it just wasn't as big of a deal for him to be like, oh yeah, that doesn't make sense. Like I'm fine to let that go. Whereas this was more of an identity thing for me. And that had really like driven the decisions in my life. Um, whereas my husband, Jared, he's a musician and it was just like, I just want to play music. You know what I mean? Like he was following his passions his whole life. Whereas all my stuff was being filtered through like, you know, okay, I, I really want to do journalism or video production or whatever, but like, how can I make that into like kingdom work? You know, like it, it all had to have this like missional angle to it or whatever. But anyways, where I was going with this was, um, yeah, Tom Ord actually, he endorsed my book, which I was so thankful for, but I came across, um, God can't, you know, maybe like six months or so, you know, after all this happened, some, something like that. Um, and yeah, it was, it was just like, yes, that, that makes so much sense. You know, the whole, the whole idea of God being spirit and God being love and, you know, in evangelicalism, it was kind of always set up where it was like, you know, God can do anything. God can solve the problem, but he, he like wants you to be part of the experience. So like, that's why you should participate. He doesn't really need you, but you know, your life will just be better if you're like a part of what God's doing kind of thing. So anyways, where Tom really like stripped that away from me and it was like, you know, no, if I know that you know, the child down the street is being abused and I feel, you know, this prompt in, in my spirit to do something about it and I don't do anything about it. Nothing's going to get done. Like it was, it was more of this, like, no, the, the spirit and flesh are dependent on one another to move. So anyway, but I, but as my husband and I were, you know, having, you know, these kind of months and months of conversations and, you know, why was this such a big deal that I, you know, that I didn't want my kids to hear about hell in this context? You know what I mean? Um, why did I feel so protective about that and et cetera? And I remember like buying God Can't and I was like, Jared, don't talk to me until you read this book. <laughs> But it was just, we were at like such a stalemate with it. And I was like, no more discussion until you read Tom's book. And he did. And it was like this watershed thing where he's like, okay, this is finally starting to make sense for me. So shout out to Tom. You know, I'm sure that we would have pushed through it somehow, but like it, it was like stalemate. And yeah, that book really kind of like opened it up where we could finally not be at such odds with each other, you know? Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's kind of funny because like uh, my wife is more similar to your, your husband in that, like mm -hmm. um, she like, I don't know, it's not as big of a deal to her. Um, And like, mm -hmm. you know, last night we were laying in bed and I was just like, 
thinking out loud, like asking her questions, like processing something. And she was like, why the fuck do you care about this? So much? <laughs> like, like, I think you're overthinking this. Um, yeah. But uh, yeah, for me though, when you talked about identity, that was the, that was the huge, that was like the thing that essentially my spiritual director helped me do. Because when I was thinking about leaving the church as like a pastor, um, I had so conflated my identity with Josh as mm-hmm. pastor. Um, and that I had to differentiate the two. And so it yeah. was a major identity crisis, like completely, like everything I'd done up into my life prior to that was getting me to like be a pastor. And now I'm like, am mm-hmm. I giving like big middle fingers to God or something like that? Um, and so that differentiation was was really helpful. And that actually is kind of where um, I started to learn more about like false self, true self. Uh, which is yeah. something that you spend a lot of time on um, in your book and giving yeah. lots of fun examples, uh, you know, via interpreting different scripture passages and that kind of stuff. Um, so maybe I know I've definitely used that language on the show before, but I don't know if I ever kind of explained it. So like if you had to, ex- yeah. <laughs> if you had to explain false self, true self uh, to our listeners, what, how much you go about doing that? Yeah. So um False self, true self, some other terminology that I like um, is like ego in essence. Um, So I picked false self and true self for the book um, because I I felt it actually sounds a little bit dualistic, but for people who are completely unfamiliar with it, I almost feel like you have to make that dualistic distinction in order to really get a, a grip on what the two parts are before before they become a little bit more nuanced and integrated kind of thing. Um, so for me, in the experience um, with the nervous breakdown, the descent into hell, the experience with the transgender woman channeling Christ on my porch, it was like sh- what I sensed coming off of her was also illuminated in me. It it was like this experience of waking up from almost physical amnesia, but I'll call it spiritual amnesia, like just a sudden awareness of what felt completely new, but also immediately familiar, where it was like remembering this essential quality of myself has been here the whole time and I have been asleep to it. Um, and so that what was waking up, I knew was my authentic self. Um, so we'll call that the true self. And w- the life that I had been walking out was essentially the protective shell around um, around that authentic essence. So I, I have this model in the book of like a, a seed like this. And I... I, I set it up and then make parallels to it. I just dropped my seed. Hold on. Where'd it go? I parallel it with um with the Garden of Eden. So, you know, psychologically, all of us, you know, come into this world in our mother's womb as infants. And psychologically speaking, it's it's this state of unitive consciousness where there's no awareness of separation. And so that is like you know, a seed growing on the tree of life. So the tree of life might represent God from which we grow out of. And it's this 
you know, awareness or unawareness, but we're one with the source. And so then to actually like progress on the journey of life, you know, the, the fruit falls off the tree, which, you know, traditionally has been seen as this moral failure from Eve. But psychologically speaking, what happens is, is that, you know, we have two primary needs as infants. One is attachment. You know, we must attach to our caregivers and our environment. The second is authenticity, which has to do with our gut feelings, our connections to our body and our authentic expression of who we are in the world. Like those are really the two basic needs um, of infants, um, but attachment is the primary one. So in this, um, I'm communicating this from the work of Gabor Mate. I don't know if you're familiar with him, but he's, you know, um, a psychologist and has done a lot of work with trauma and attachment and all this. Um, so this is from him. He's fantastic. But um, basically what he says is, is if our authenticity threatens our attachment to our caregivers or environment, that's what's going to go. Um, that's what's going to get suppressed because the attachment part is biological life or death. You know, <laughs> so I, I have to like adapt to these people in this environment or I'm going to die, you know? Um, and so, you know, it, it's not, is it, then it becomes, it's not about blaming anyone because to some extent this is going to happen with everybody. Like there's no perfect holding environment for infants. You know, we know a lot more about attachment now, but like nobody's perfect. Nobody can do this perfectly all the time. And so what I try to, you know, propose in the book is that the story of the Garden of Eden um, are is basically, you know, metaphorical or allegorical pictures of what is inevitably going to happen in life. And so you have the picture of, you know, um, Adam falling asleep, which, um, and then Eve being taken out of Adam. And so for me, that represents, you know, the true self or the authentic soul, you know, being suppressed and Adam falling asleep um, to this awareness of like the feminine soul, um, which is really like our creative spirit and our life force and our vitality. So, um, so I kind of, you know, demonstrate it and have this seed metaphor that kind of carries throughout the book and then take a bunch of the really well-known scriptures and, and highlight how I think that it's basically maps to, you know, finding our way back to our th authentic selves where that internal essence is informing these outer roles. There's not a conflict of like, you know, Josh the pastor and who Josh really is. It's the authentic essence of Josh, you know, animating these different roles that he is in. So to me, that is what the two becoming one flesh is about, um, which, you know, and fortunately or unfortunately, I'm not sure which one, it's not just something that you become aware of and then decide to do. It really is like this whole psychological alchemical process, which, you know, is demonstrated in all sorts of these stories. One of which was like Jonah and the whale, you know, being swallowed by the unconscious into the belly. What happens in a belly? You know, the old is broken down, digested, metabolized, and like transmuted into new energy. And then 
you know, birth happens out of a belly. So that very much felt like my experience was like this whole psychological breaking down, recovering, you know, the Christ within and then rebirthing it into like this new incarnation, you know, <laughs> where it's like, oh, who I truly am is now starting to animate, you know, my actual life. And then comes the work of going like, oh, but I still do have this ego here as a vehicle, you know? And sometimes, yeah, just just becoming aware of like, oh, this is what I really want to say. This is what I really want to do. And then going, oh, but my nervous system is in conflict with that. So then the healing really became about like, and I actually feel like I heard this on the You Have Permission podcast. He had a great guest on one time that was essentially said, you know, the Christian walk or the spiritual life or whatever is about like converting your amygdala to Christianity. Like how do I get the fear, the portion of my brain responsible for the fear response to calm down, you know, and, um, and not be lighting up my nervous system every time my true self wants to come forward. Yeah, no, that's good. Um, I wonder if uh, that was the conversation Greg had with with Dan at one point. It's definitely something Greg what was would his say. last name. I'm not sure. Farrand. I don't know. I, I'll have might... to. Yeah, I might have to go back. It's a, it was a great episode. Yeah, I just cool. I just remember him saying that. Like I, I'm trying to convert my amygdala to Christianity. Yeah. Like, yes. <laughs> <It's funny>. <laughs> <laughs> That's it. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. That's funny, but it. I don't know. It's it's interesting too because like. So for me, when I was like, before I had language for like this Mm -hmm. experience that you're describing, um, I just kind of felt like my internal and external realities were out of whack is the best way I could explain Mm -hmm. it. Like I remember going and Mm -hmm. sitting in, uh, oddly enough, my friend Heather, uh, she was the um, middle school pastor at the, the last church I worked at. I would go sit in her office and be like, Heather, I don't feel like a youth pastor. Like I'm playing a game Mm -hmm. and like, it's, you know, Mm -hmm. trying to explain it to her. And I'm um, like constantly having this issue. And basically for me, I had what I call like my Bo Burnham moment. <laughs> I don't know if you know mm-hmm. who Bo Burnham is. Oh, yeah. I love, inside, I love Bo Burnham. Yeah. yeah. Inside was great. Um, yeah. But he has this special called Make Happy, uh, which is my favorite okay. special of his. And it's it's super meta because it's a the whole show is kind of about Bo's uh, depression. And mm-hmm. it's also about uh, performing and the very last song like um, that he does is uh, basically he was makes fun of Kanye West for a little bit, but then he breaks character as like the performer bow and kind of goes into like actual bow and is expressing mm-hmm. his depression and expressing he has this line where he says like, you know, my job is to get up here and give you guys something that I can't even give to myself. And like, yeah. that's how I felt as a pastor. <laughs> So like, mm-hmm. but then he like says like, oh, but you guys don't want to hear me talk about this. I'm my job is here to make you happy. So I'm just gonna like do this. Mm-hmm. And he like has this conflict going back and forth. Um yeah. And so for me, that was that was kind of really illuminating uh to start to kind of help me see uh I typically use ego, um, you know, my ego and like how I was what that uh how I was projecting that. And then, mm-hmm. like I said, Sid, my spiritual director, really helped me start to differentiate and kind of, um, I don't know, 
break free from that but it did very much feel like uh like a death or a dying i know like in the book you talk about like the kind of like in the belly of the whale kind of um yeah experiences or like you know dark night of the soul kind of thing um yeah but yeah that that almost and and also too you talk about like dying to self like dying to to ego almost like yeah and having to then try to live out of that more true and authentic self um which is something that I've been working on and uh, I think I'm doing a way better job of it. However, sometimes mm-hmm. I still, uh, I can get caught up and be like, Oh man, I'm uh, buying back into to some of the lies of the false self or, or of my ego. Um, yeah. It's like a house of mirrors. It yeah. <laughs> really is sometimes, you know, where so- even some things that I, well, I'll just even throw this out there. I initially on my deconstruction journey, that was the authentic, proper and necessary place that I needed to be was kind of there was a lot of anger there um, where I needed that essentially to be able to push off and and have the force to get out of, to, to break some of the attachments that I had, some of the identity, you know, so it was very much about like this, this separating a detox process, really. Um, there's, there's a story that uh, in a chapter in the book where, um, you know, Jesus is talking about like, you know, the man who finds the treasure in the field, he finds it and then he buries it. And then he goes and sells all his possessions. And to me, that was, uh, an allegory for this psychological detox process. Like, oh, I found this thing in myself, but it's so new and precious and fresh. It's almost like I went and hit it again and then had to do my detox process before I felt like it was ready to like, you know, bring forth into the world kind of thing. So anyways, but it was interesting to just go, you know, I wasn't even evangelical now I'm an ex-evangelical, like, you know, that's my new thing. And it started out as very pure. And then maybe a couple of years in, it was like, I think I'm kind of attached to this, you know, um, where I, I don't consider myself an evangelical anymore, but it was, it was just this tricky thing that the ego does where it's like, oh, now this is my new identity. Now I'm against everything, you know, that I used to stand for or whatever. And and I was kind of attached to those kind of things. And I and I noticed, I started to notice where occasionally, you know, in the deconstruction community, there'd be like a response or something to something that happened. And I would once again feel like, I don't know if I agree with this, or I don't know if what's being said exactly resonates with me or whatever, but there's so many loud voices and I... I'm afraid to lose my attachments again, you know, and it was the same thing. And it was just like, shit, you know, like, oh, now I have this new identity where I'm afraid of relational ruptures again, you know? Um, And so I realized like, okay, any, literally anything can become an ego attachment. Um, And so, yeah, it's difficult to constantly be sifting through it and, you know, going like, you know, this was good at the time, but now it's my new thing, you know, as opposed to like the lightness and pureness of, you know, 
your essence or essential quality. It's, it's nimble, you know, like when, when you see the picture of, you know, like Jesus being able to like walk through walls and, you know, it's like, okay, what, what is, what are the needs of this situation? And these people that are right in front of me, how does this not become an ideology all over again, where I'm bringing my, the essence of who I am and being able to read the situation. And that's when it kind of moved into me viewing, not just, you know, within, in the Christian tradition and evangelicalism, but literally like all humans in all the tribes and all the groups is like this process of human development, you know? where we all start at zero, you know, step number one after that is this very egoic stage. Step number two after that is really this ethnocentric tribal, you know, like I love me and I love my people and that's kind of it, you know, and I protect my people. And it's like, that's number two. Number three is realizing like, oh, I love all the people and all the tribes are doing the same thing, you know? Um, and then after that is kind of more of like this integration of all of them where you realize everyone's on this growth trajectory and there are certain like light and shadow sides of each stage. And yeah, I think, I think where the deconstruction community can kind of get caught sometimes is not, is not recognizing that like when you're at a certain level, you like the level above that literally makes no sense, you know? So anyways, it's, it's like, um, a nuanced kind of thing to figure out how do I, how do I like create art and inspiration and beauty that's going to speak to the like authentic soul in each person, as opposed to like getting bogged down in rational argument, you know, or irrational arguments <laughs> that are really kind of just become like an ego game for me. Yeah, no, for sure. It sounds like that like little process you're describing sounds very similar to like spiral dynamics. Are you familiar? Yeah, that's, okay, that's cool. yes, yes. That's what I'm. Yeah. Um. Yeah. Ken Wilber. Yeah. The the colors and everything. If people aren't familiar with it, can kind of like get into the weeds. But that's exactly what it is. And that's yeah, sweet. That that was his model. That he, you know, that's I love about Ken Wilber is he. I don't even remember the hundreds of models that he studied. And was literally like, in all of them, this is the pattern, you know? Nobody's popping out as this enlightened being, you know? So it's it's interesting because I did, maybe just because my experience was so jarring that even when I felt like I had subscribed to healthier values or healthier beliefs, healthier ways of looking at humanity in the world kind of thing, um, you know, a lot of people are like, I just don't understand how people could think blah, 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 you know, how religious people could believe blah, 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 or how Republicans could believe blah, 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 or what I'm like, I do, you know, <laughs> like, I believed blah, 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 for a long time. And like, with a lot of sincerity, and there's a certain compassion and grace that opens, when you really do understand, like, the way that you're raised, if you, as an impressionable kid, if you were taught these things and it was a life and death thing and your whole brain, body, and nervous system is wired into that, you're going to believe that and you're going to believe that it's the loving thing, 
you know? So anyways, I'm always a, a little maybe skeptical of someone's like, I just don't, you know, I don't, I can't understand how people, and I'm like, I literally can understand how people would believe anything now, you know? I don't think we have quite enough appreciation for how powerful the mind really is. Yeah, no, for sure. And I think too, like you said, you're you're talking about the, because uh, like looking back, there are definitely past versions of Josh that I'm like, oh my goodness, that is so embarrassing. Um, yeah. Like, you know, <laughs> my, and for a variety of reasons, you know, I mean, even yeah. past versions of Josh that exist on this podcast feed, you know, yeah. um, of our versions of like, if I see that past version of Josh and like a person today, I'm like, oh my gosh, this is so freaking annoying. But also yes. uh, what happens is when you can, like you're saying, when you can look back and have a grace and love and acceptance and integrate those past, you know, um, mm-hmm. versions of yourself, then that also mm-hmm. too, like you're saying, opens up so you can have room for grace uh, for others because you recognize yeah. yourself in them. Um, and yeah. you're recognizing like, oh yeah, I, I remember that. Or, you know, I was once there, um, or something like that. And I, I don't know. I've, you know, when I think back to my own journey, um, you know, there are a few people who kind of really stand out to me that have kind of just allowed me to, um, you know, they've just accepted all these like different versions of Josh as he's come along, mm-hmm. um, you know, and that's been, you know, that's like a gift that I can't, you know, I can't ever necessarily repay it's priceless um but perhaps i can at least you know try to help be that for others you know yeah Um, exactly and so yeah that's cool but yeah and also too just one more quick thing when you were speaking i was thinking of i remember when i finally had that like revelation that because basically i had like what i call like a cage stage deconstruction phase right Mm -hmm. where it's like no different than like a cage stage calvinist but just i was like deconstruction blah blah blah, whatever um and i just came to a point where i realized that um if i was going to call myself like an ex-evangelical i never really used that term i don't think it was really Mm -hmm. um around as much when that was kind of my thing but um i realized that what i was i was doing was i was still allowing myself to be defined by a system Mm -hmm that I was claiming I no longer cared about or was a part of because <laughs> I was yes, still playing yes. the game on their Yeah, Everything terms. was a reaction. Yeah. Yeah. And you just become, you become a fundamentalist on just on the flip side of things. You just, now you're on yes. a different team, but you don't, you haven't actually yeah, learned how It's just the anti-religion to... religion. <laughs> right. Exactly. And so it just, yeah. yeah so it, it's, it's interesting, but also too, um, nowadays, like when I see, people going through that um and just because of the gift that people have given to me to allow me to go through that or like rob bell did an episode once called let them have their trip like just let it happen yeah (laughs) and uh trust the you know process so to speak and not from this like i am better holier than thou kind of space but just recognizing that this too is your story you know yes Um, yes so that's yeah that's that's all very uh i don't know i dig it so yeah, I dig it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And sorry, I know I've uh, been talking a lot, but one other thing that that really stood out when you were talking um, is like what I like to call the myth of separation, uh, which mm-hmm. I think is huge. Right. You're talking about that with the when you're talking about um, like unitive consciousness, infancy, that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. But um, 
like for me recognize like how i talk about the myth of separation is i think that's kind of where like sin arises from is once we buy into this myth that we are separate from each other uh from god from creation then we do really shitty things right like Uh if i believe Uh i'm separate from you then i can dehumanize you i can be racist i can kill you whatever etc yeah um you know it doesn't affect me yeah right exactly and uh, when we believe we're separate from nature or creation, I mean, I don't really have to explain mm-hmm. that one because just look at the state of things currently, you know. And also when mm-hmm. we believe uh, that we are separate from God, we have these crazy um, experiences like you have shared your own story. Yeah. Um, and so also, too, like what's cool is we see like even like science is catching up to this idea, right? Like quantum physics is crazy <laughs> Yeah. in this. But also this is part of why I really like uh, process relational thought i mean this isn't all of it but one of the the key and main important ideas within uh process thought is that um everything nothing exists in a vacuum everything kind of exists Mm -hmm. as a web of relationships and so uh truly like what i do to myself i also do to you and you know that kind of thing um but in a very real and honest way and so that that Mm -hmm. myth of separation i think is just so dangerous um and then we have, you know, different religious traditions, uh, even within Christianity, that teach the myth of separation. <laughs> it's yeah, it's just so damaging. So I don't know. I was I was excited when you were talking about that because I think that breaking down that myth is kind of one of the big like aha um, moments yes. I had, not just intellectually but also experientially, like through like centering prayer and stuff, just coming to this place where. I know it sounds weird or woo, but like you kind of experience the oneness of all things. Um, I can't. Yeah, the boundaries kind of dissolve. Yeah, and I can't argue yeah. against that because it's like this is. I don't know what to tell you. It's what happened to me. Like, <laughs> yeah. you know, it's not a logical <laughs> argument anymore. Like this is experiential. So, I don't know. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yet yeah, no, completely. And I think I love that you brought that up because, you know, when I. When I think back to that experience of hell where my my picture of God died, it was very much, um, yeah, like when, when Jesus says, you know, why have you forsaken me kind of thing. Like it was that kind of feeling, you know, where um, I, I no longer believed in that. It, it was almost um, an atheistic kind of thing, like the, that outside deity does not exist for me anymore that died. However, it wasn't, it wasn't this flatlining thing. It was a almost immediate shift into an incarnational worldview where everything became sacred. And it was like, you know, just as what the Bible says, like where, where was God on Good Friday? First Corinthians, God was in Jesus suffering, you know, reconciling the world to him. And so suddenly it becomes not, why isn't God saving me from this? Why isn't God intervening? It becomes, oh, these tears that I'm crying are God's. Like somehow this is, this is spirit consecrated to my flesh and moving as one, you know? So I, I'm, I've done video editing for, um, like 20 years in video production. I remember working on this video um, 
was for this organization in Malawi. Um, and it was kind of highlighting this woman who was doing, you know, this work in these slums. And it was literally like the worst conditions you, you know, c- can imagine in terms of like poverty and the way that women and children were treated and everything. And, um, you know, she, there was just this scene or interview with her where she was just crying, like, God, do you see this? Like, she was constantly just asking herself, like, do you see this? Like, we have literally like one, two, three-year-olds who are raped and the police do nothing. And it's, you know, like, this is, this is atrocious and the scope of the problem is so big. And like, when are you going, like how long Lord was, you know, kind of the, the cry. And, and it becomes this sobering and beautiful and devastating thing all at once to be like, Oh, where's God? God is in that woman. Like that's, that's where God is. And you realize the limitations of, you know, God is doing so much through her and also God is limited by the physical world, you know, and, and what we can do and death and suffering are, you know, they're baked in. And that's something that even, you know, on, you know, when I was in evangelicalism, it was like, oh, this is, the utopia is going to be after we die, you know, then, then suffering will cease kind of thing. And then, you know, when I moved into more like progressive Christianity, the, the pitfall can be like, oh, the utopia can be now, you know, we can eliminate suffering. And to some extent it's like, yeah, you know, when we wake up and we realize like, oh my gosh, like Christ is in me and I can move and like, I'm responsible and, you know, you're me and I'm you and we're one and like what we do to each other, like we're doing to ourselves and we're doing to Christ and it becomes this way of seeing things. It's like, yes, this can be so much better. And also, you know, like as the Buddha said, like life is suffering, you know, like I talked to a woman a few months ago, I was, you know, checking out at the grocery store kind of thing. And she's asking me how I'm doing. And you know, she just starts crying and is like, yeah, I lost my son last week. He had pulled over to like help someone change a tire and he got hit. Like he like literally like pulled over to do something helpful and, you know, someone's not paying attention and he's gone kind of thing. And it's like, there's no injustice. That, like, it's just, there's just life, you know? And so there's like this built-in suffering and I, and you know, kind of how we've been discussing, like, then going back to, you know, my metaphor of the seed, you know, the false self forms around the embryo or the true self. And this shell is, com- is totally essential for carrying this little seed, like through, you know, the, the environment and nature and is brutal, you know, without the ego, without the vehicle of this shell, then the embryo inside it just gets completely washed away. So it's like we need this vehicle for the first stage of life to get us to where we are. And it's only when like the conditions are right can the shell break apart, you know, and dissolve into the soil and what's inside can take root and grow. Um, And so 
you know, with that model, the model of human development, you know, you can't take someone from an egoic straight to, you know, this integral, you know, more aware state that you have to go through all the stages. So even in like our quest to like relieve suffering, sometimes I've found sometimes people aren't ready to let it go, you know, where this ego does start to create this internal suffering, which what you mentioned, it's like starts to create chaos in our outer world. And you just think, you know, from the outside, you're like, hey, just stop doing this. You know, just let me just let me help you out here. And then you can stop suffering. So but what I have learned experientially is like not everyone's ready to do that. Not everyone's ready to heal, you know? And so to kind of what you're saying, it's like, let them have their trip. I think Ram Dass kind of says the same thing too. I don't know if you've ever listened to him, but he's like, we, you know, we all have our own trip. So anyways, yeah, it's this, it's almost an art to figure out like, where can we really step in and like make a difference versus where is this becoming something where I'm feeling an egoic need to, to save everybody, you know, some of which don't even, don't even want my help, you know? So, but anyway, to, to circle back to your question, just this mysterious, beautiful thing where you see Christ in yourself. And so it's like, oh, I have compassion for my own suffering now. I see divinity in you. So I have compassion for that, you know, and then I see, you know, this Christ mystery animating everything, you know, and then, and then the realization that like, everything's going to die, meaning like all forms are impermanent, you know, so the form is going to change. So yeah, it's this, is this dance of like not clinging to anything as Jesus, you know, Jesus resurrects and he's more vapory, you know, he's more resurrected spirit kind of thing. It's like, don't cling to me, you know? So. No, it's good. I, uh, I don't know. We, we seem to speak a similar language. Um, <laughs> I hear the, some of the Buddhist influence in there, uh, as mm-hmm. well, which like, you know, like Thich Nhat Hanh, uh, for me has been like huge. I've read so much of his work. Um, yeah. and like, I had like, I remember I was at work when I found out that he died. I like started crying and I was mm-hmm. like, I don't even know this guy, but somehow I feel like I yeah. did, you know? Um, you yeah. Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> so it's, it's so interesting. And uh, I love your seed metaphor to it. It kind of reminds me of like, um, you know, when you talk about the necessity of that, that hard outer shell, like uh, Richard Rohr kind of talks about like, well, you need to first build an ego in order to learn how to transcend it. And so it's like you said, yes. it's all, it's all a part of the, uh, it's all a part of the journey. It's all a part of the, the story. Um, yeah. And, and just one other thing that, that stood out, you know, when you're talking about, um, kind of like your death of God experience, uh, mm-hmm. I feel like I've had a few of those, <laughs> right. Mm-hmm. Where you're mm-hmm. like, uh, cause like, you know, when Nietzsche was saying like, God is dead, he wasn't just straight up saying like anyone who believes in god is an idiot he was saying this version of god is dead and i have had versions of god die and it is painful mm-hmm. um mm-hmm. but also i forget who it is but um who was it there's you might know one of the christian mystics 
um, would pray this prayer, God, rid me of God, like big G God, rid me of little G mm-hmm. God. And it was just this idea mm-hmm. that like, don't allow me to become attached to my understanding or idea or concept of what I think God is. Like, allow me to mm-hmm. actually worship God as God is and not just my idea or my concept. And so like mm-hmm. that experiencing constantly that death of God, I think um, is important part of, you know, uh, spiritual or faith journey, however you want to label it. Um, and I mean, I yes. think the whole like death of God on a cross <laughs> kind of points us to that mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. as like kind of one of the central tenets of the Christian faith, right? The, the crucifixion, but it doesn't end there. We have the resurrection. So I don't know, just some, yeah. some thoughts. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. But what, so I want to ask you one more question just because I'm like purely curious. Um, why why did you arrive at the title returning to Eden? Like, what was your thought yeah. process there? So I didn't have a thought process of it. Um, that literally, okay. So af- after the experience of hell and that mystical experience, I did feel this like huge influx of new energy, like in my body and where I was like, this is new sensations, you know, I've never experienced the, and I mean, it felt good, you know, it was like, oh, this is, this is what it feels to be alive and to be feeling like my life's energy really like in my body. Um, and something strange that would kind of happen for a while after that was I, you know, I'd go to sleep and I would wake up at like three, four o'clock in the morning and would just kind of feel like this warm energy, like in my body. And I would just lay there for like an hour or whatever and just feel it, you know? Um, and so that happened like for quite a while. And one night I, it's like, I just woke up and like returning to eat, which is like sitting on my forehead. So I didn't think about it. I just woke up one night how I had been and it was just sitting right there. And it just felt like the perfect metaphor for what I had experienced and what I had come to know that the spiritual life was about, which, um, you know, kind of what we talked about. I think Joseph Campbell says it like this, um, that um, the spiritual life is about discovering the face you had before you were born. And that to me was like a perfect correlation for returning to the garden. Who was I before I was born. What was my essence? You know, I was like feeling into that. Um, this is who I was. This is my essential quality. This is my true self before I even came out of the womb. So, you know, up until that point, it had been like, you know, oh, I was a straight A student. I'm a Christian. I'm a mom. I'm a wife. I do video production. You know, I'm funny. I'm smart. Like I had all these different identity markers that you know, was necessary again for the ego to make its way through life. Like we have to have some kind of identity to like get us through the first half. But then the spiritual life became, okay, take that away, take that, you know, take all of this away. And then even doing, you know, meditations on like, what if I imagine I've taken my arm away, you know, and until you're just left with like, nothingness, you know, and to what you were speaking of, it's all of a sudden, like, I'm, I feel like I'm kind of one with everything sort of thing, you know, but so returning to Eden was like, 
you know, when Jesus is talking to Nicodemus, he's like, you got to be reborn again. Nicodemus is going, what are you talking about? I'm supposed to go back into my mother's womb. And, you know, and it's like, no, you're supposed to go all the way back to the beginning, to the garden and like recover that essential quality and bring it into the flesh. You know, the kingdom of God being within you or in the gospel of Thomas, the kingdom of heaven is spread out upon the earth and men don't see it. You know, it comes from within, from the well deep within you. So there's a chapter about um, the wellspring of life being within and, you know, the woman at the well, like the well being a metaphor for like the depths of her heart, you know, and the verse says that the spring of life will well up from within you. So as I started to go back, I saw all these verses and all these pictures of having to go deep, 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 deep down, you know, or all the way back to recover. Um, and you realize like, oh, the water that comes out of a well or a spring is like, it's so full deep down and it's, you got to go down before it gets up, you know? So heaven becomes more of like a deeper, wider, aliver experience from within that wells up into your external life. So that's where the title came from was going all the way back to the beginning and yeah, letting that essential quality filter through like all my memories, all my traumas and all the way into my life now, you know? No, I love it. <laughs> I was just, yeah, I was just curious. Cause I know there's so many, like, uh, I don't know for me, there's like, like different ways I could go with that. Like sometimes like how you're describing like this return to like, you know, the deepest, most truest aspect, something like that. I'm like, Oh yeah, mm -hmm. straight up. But then on, you know, at other times, if I, you know, frame it differently, um, I'm like, why would I want to go back somewhere? I feel like the thing I'm going to is is forward, but at the, yeah. but you see like the the it's probably like mm -hmm. a false dichotomy there. But so I don't know. I was just curious why you why you picked that because it's you know like I said yeah. it could go it could go many ways. Um, yeah, totally. Well, yeah, that um, it, yeah, it was the thought that was just kind of sitting on my head. But to your yeah. point, yeah, I think it's it's both in the beginning for sure. For me, at least, I it was. I had to fix the psychological pipes up here, which absolutely required that. Um, I did that with EMDR therapy. I'm not sure if you're familiar with what that is, but it's, um, yeah, it's like reprocessing different memories. Um, so for me, initially, it was filtering back through, you know, the different distressing or upsetting things that I had experienced and recognizing how, you know, something that might have happened when I was eight was still being triggered in my body. You know, it was like, I was still replaying it or unconsciously, you know, zipping back to there. So that's what it was at first. But then to your point, I don't really think about it that much anymore. Like it was like, Oh, okay. Yeah. We went and like healed and dealt with that. And now I don't want to, it's not, I don't want to think about it. It's just like, now I'm here, you know, now I'm in the present moment and where am I going? And yeah, even with the book, it was like, I, I think in a healthy way, live 
I kind of live with like my death in mind, just meaning like, oh, if I died tomorrow, what would I regret? Do you have that on your arm? I have a, I have a memento mori tattoo. Yeah, it says death will know my yes. name. That was like a big deal yes. for me when I got it. So yeah, was that Marcus Aurelius? Uh, so I took the that phrase. I don't know where they got it, but there's a band I like called Fit for a King, and they okay yeah. use that in one of their songs. Yeah, it's a Latin yeah. thing. Okay, yeah. yes, but uh, exactly. So that's that's exactly what I mean. Is is I just felt yeah, it was like, oh, if I if I died with all of this inside me, even if I just hadn't written it down for my kids, you know, I I, I need to do this kind of thing. Um, so yeah, my life is is much more like that now where I, I feel like because I went through and reprocessed everything, I don't carry a ton of baggage from my past. I like to think so. I mean, I think my family would say it's better living with you now, you know? <laughs> so, but yeah, much more excitement about the future and being free of fear and really confronting your fears. It's like, yeah, I, st I still do get scared about things, but, but anything, once you've already sort of confronted your fear of death it's like nothing's gonna top that so anything that could happen is just we'll make it through you know yeah no the the fear of death thing was was huge for me and i actually on a recent episode it um that should have aired by now by the time this one comes out um i shared like a a, a psychedelic experience that i had um that mm -hmm. was kind of helpful in overcoming the the fear of death and um, I just remember, I'm pretty sure it was Richard Rohr said that like the fear of death and the fear of God are one and the same thing. And if you overcome one, mm -hmm. you'll overcome the other. Um, mm -hmm. so that was kind of like, just, I don't know my experience, but also too, I think, um, just to wrap up, cause I, as, as we were talking, you know, one thing that we didn't cover too, too much. I mean, we talked about it, but not like explicitly was you do a lot of really fun work with like symbolism and mythology uh throughout mm -hmm. your book um mm -hmm. and i you know i really enjoyed that just like kind of going through like the different uh bible stories and passages like you did and kind of giving like these uh like interpretations was, was pretty sweet but if we think about you know this in like the within more of that kind of uh lens if you look at the bible you do have eden in the beginning but also you have it at the end as well like the yeah. yeah the eschatological hope at least within the the new testament is not that someday we go and you know live in some ethereal like wispy space or something like that but rather that like heaven and earth um you know overlap they're rejoined and we see this it's it's literally it's eden imagery it's a it's a garden city though it's like kind of different now but it's still like yeah. this eden bit so perhaps um yeah, it's not, it doesn't have to be one or the other, but probably like yeah, most things exactly. in life, it's a both end. Uh, and so, yeah, I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm just imagining like, as you're describing that a circle, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Where, yeah. The, like the symbol of completion when, and it's interesting, there's a chapter in there on like the prodigal son, where once again, that whole thing is set up as sort of the shame-based thing for the prodigal, you know, like don't wander off you know, kind of thing. And it's actually by doing the wandering, he ends up back in the same place, but he takes the whole wisdom journey and he brings back with him, like he fulfilled his destiny by doing that. So 
it's, it's interesting just what you're saying, you know, is we do quote unquote wander away from the garden and eventually there's this homecoming where you could kind of, you kind of go, why'd you leave in the first place? You know, you ended up at the same place. So why go through all this mess? And it's, it's like, you have to, that that's the journey of completion, you know, where all of a sudden your whole life is, is saturated with this wisdom and you end up in a place of peace and joy and gratitude compared to, you know, the other brother in the story where it's like, oh, he was in quote unquote heaven with the father the whole time. He, but he doesn't realize it. So they're both in the same place, but the older brother is in hell and the prodigal son is in heaven because he's taken the journey and he's realized, oh, that it, what I was looking for was here the whole time, you know? Yeah, no, absolutely. I, I love that. And I think part of how I uh, recognize somebody that I think is a, uh, a good spiritual teacher or is not just propagating um, bullshit, basically, <laughs> like someone who is, who is speaking from experience. I think the mark mm-hmm. of a good spiritual teacher is somebody who can... Uh, like crack you open so to speak and go inside and pull out of you wisdom and knowledge that had been there the whole time that mm-hmm. like helps you awaken to this this reality like you're saying and so like you know there's plenty of books i've read where i'm like i don't know these people are just you know repeating things that they've heard someone else mm-hmm. say it doesn't have that same kind of spiritual power um but i don't know so that's just yeah um just a thought of mine, I think it is interesting that uh, a good spiritual teacher is one that can go inside of you and help bring out that wisdom and knowledge that like you're saying, it's been there the whole time. Uh, mm-hmm. And they're just somebody that kind of uh, helps extract that and helps you realize mm-hmm. that. Sam, um, mm-hmm. so yeah, I don't know. I was yeah. when you were speaking there, but Thanks, anyway, yeah, Heather, this was like way a lot of fun. Um, I had a good time. <laughs> Hopefully you did Me as too. well. Yeah, me yeah. too. Thanks for having me. Yeah, most definitely. Would you like to um, like plug any of your pluggables, as propaganda likes to say? Um, <laughs> like that kind of stuff. Yeah. Plug your pluggables. Yes. Yeah. So my book, Returning to Eden, is out now. You can find it on Amazon. Um, and Or you can request it at your local bookstore or Barnes & Noble, wherever. Um my website is returningtoeden.com. Um, that's where you can sign up for my newsletter. I have a monthly newsletter called Unorthodox that um, yeah goes out once a month. I'm also on Instagram at Heather Hamilton One, um, on Facebook as Heather Hamilton Author, and uh, yeah, I think that's it. So reach out. I would love to connect. Um, I've had so much fun, you know, people reaching out about the book and having conversations. So I try to respond if someone if someone does reach out. Yeah, sweet. And uh, listeners too, like for me personally, it was just like, Heather, one thing that I appreciate about your book is like, I still have a very weird uh, relationship with the Bible. Um, mm-hmm. Like I I know it pretty well and can like, you know, whatever, but I still have a weird relationship with it. Like I don't really know what to do with it. It's not, I don't like enjoy reading mm-hmm. it or something like that. And so like one thing I enjoyed about your book was just looking at these different uh, Bible stories that were so familiar um but then Mm -hmm. just having them kind of you know a new like 
just like reimagined almost mm-hmm. or like a new kind of interpretation that was just like i don't know fun and life-giving and different and uh so i think listeners if you are similar to me and you're like yeah i don't this bible stuff man i don't know i think that's one just another aspect of your book that i think they'd really appreciate um it's just the the there's like a fun like lightness and playfulness and uh but also not a lightness and playfulness that comes from uh like uh a place of um dang it words are difficult essentially i'm trying to say it's it's the lightness and playfulness that comes on the other side of uh of wisdom like it's 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 mm-hmm. from experience and from uh finding that deep joy and the true self and that kind of thing um and so, yeah, I, I appreciated that about your work. And I, uh, I think others will as well. So thanks, Josh. Yeah, that makes yeah. me happy to hear here. Yeah, absolutely. Good deal. Well, listeners, as always, thanks so much for hanging out today, guys. And uh, go in peace. Peace.